Thank you, President Higgins, for inviting me to participate in this series of reflections on my colleague John Horne's very interesting document. In fact, in listening to John again, uh, things have occurred to me which may interpolate themselves and to leave also into what I say. I want to begin by saying a bit about the, the quote, the Irish nation and the challenge of ethical commemoration. In my view, nationalist Ireland was unified and to an extent radicalized as much by the conscription crisis of 1918 as by the rising two years earlier. Uh, and I, I would argue in the interim by politics and including the astonishing decision of the British authorities to release all those people uh, whom they hadn't uh, executed but had imprisoned. Um, I think we in, we in Ireland certainly should be careful that we in turn don't, don't now attempt, as it were, to conscript everyone in the island into a single commemorative cohort. Uh, our island includes people, our shared island, I should say, uh, who see themselves both as Irish and as British and people who see themselves simply as British through and through. I, I think commemoration isn't legitimized simply by, by inclusiveness, by remembering Ulster's as well as nationalist Ireland's uh, Great War Dead, I, by belatedly discovering the role of women in the Irish Revolution, which has uh, very much been that was a mark of, of the centenary of, of 1916. I think Richard Carney's rather cheerful nostrum of, quote, a hospitality of narratives is all very well. But we have to be careful because I think that some people don't want to be as it were, included, and see their commemorations and their memories and their issues as separate from our discourse. And just as we expect others, for example, to, to leave James McLean, the footballer, alone in his very well-grounded uh, decision not to wear the poppy around Armistice Day in Britain because of his background uh, 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 growing up in, in nationalist or Republican dairy, uh, so we in turn should respect, I think, the, uh, that other people may simply not wish to be part of our uh, commemorative uh, uh, reflections, however uh, um, pluralist they, they seem to be. Uh, a few years ago, I was um, perhaps now looking back rather condescendingly and complacently, I commented on how I th how excellent I thought uh, the then Minister for Arts, Culture, Heritage of the Gaeltacht, Heather Humphreys, uh, had managed the, the 2016 commemoration specifically. Uh, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as we know, as a, as a border Protestant woman, uh, she, I thought she had been terrific. She had been engaged. She had, she plainly and openly said she came from, in a sense, a different tradition to most of us. But on the other hand, she'd been, she, she grew up in Monaghan. She'd been to school in Coot Hill. In fact, with some of my cousins in a, one of the few community schools that was open at the time. And I thought this was all a very good thing. And afterwards, a man in the audience came up to me and he identified himself as, quote, a Donegal Protestant. And he said that he felt, and some in his community had felt very disturbed by the centenary. I was amazed. He was just, he said they were disturbed in particular by what I had praised, which was the, the idea of the defense forces coming to every school with a copy of the proclamation and a copy of the national flag. And he said also that, that Minister Humphreys being in the role she, role she was in could quote, no longer speak for us. And I found that initially not, not offensive, but, but, but uh, it sort of, uh, Maybe think a bit about um, about the reality that that there may be people in this state, this glorious uh, sceptered isle, uh, our 20, twenty six counties of us, uh, who don't actually particularly particularly in the border areas, who still look across the border, who still who still who they they too like many northern nationalists feel that partition has been cruel to them, and that's a hundred years after the event. So many years ago in Cambridge, I introduced a young woman 
uh, the fiance of, of a friend who, who said she was from such and such a place, which I knew was on the Donegal border. And I said, oh, which side is it on? This is the height of the troubles. And she immediately said, oh, it's 300 yards into the Republic, worse luck. And I thought, how could she not wish to be in our glorious Republic in whatever it was, 1980 or 1981? So I think we have to be mindful that there's lots of lots of groups for whom partition in particular and commemoration linked to it remains more sensitive than we think because of the past and because of a, a future, if you like, into which minorities were placed in 1921, 1922. And we also have to remember that until 1925, there was some hope, not only for 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 border uh, commu- for border communities in particular. Uh, identifying as nationalist or identifying as unionist, the, the lines would be withdrawn. And that would not have been anomalous, would not have been out of the way. On the contrary, the history of partitions of borders is one of, of, of not of permanence, but, but of transience. I think also we, we've, we've to reflect, I'm not sure what we can do, about the nationalist experience in the newly created Northern Ireland, to quote Dermot Ferreter, where nationalist experience, quote, the tyranny of the special. And again, my own father's relatives uh, who, who, who stayed in the North, who were, wouldn't have, by, by the time I met in the 70s and 80s, certainly not part of a Republican narrative. But their, their, their recollections, their childhoods, is almost dominated by the intrusive nature uh, of security, even in quiet times, and by, in particular by, the, by, by the, the specials, not necessarily as beating them up, but as being... Uh, of the other side and having the authority somehow to interrogate you no matter what you were doing. And I don't know how we deal with that. Uh, and in terms of the Northern minority, again, in 1921 and 22, especially, many hundreds of them lost their homes, uh, 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 some of their livelihoods, and certainly scores, I mean, I don't have a precise number, but I would guess well over 200 died in sectarian attacks. Uh, and and some, some people have, were faced with a choice uh, again, my, my, my father's father and his new bride had to decide in the summer of 22, did they go south uh, or did they stay in the north? And most likely my grandfather would have been interned as his brother-in-law was interned for two years when he returned north at the beginning of 1923. And how many other Republicans left the north because of that, or nationalists, uh, because of oppression, because of the fear of arrest, or because it was such a, a hostile new environment, I don't know. And I do wonder whether, for example, had there been more John today again mentioned the emphasis of minority rights, which I think is extremely important in the Anglo-Irish negotiations and in the production of the 1922 treaty here. Uh, but it, had there been comparable protections uh, explicitly uh, for the minority in Northern Ireland, other than PR, which was then removed later in the 1920s, whether the North might have worked out differently. But I think the history of Europe uh, in the 20th century, again, as John alluded to, is no matter how grand uh, the provisions for protections for minorities and so on, he instances Poland, it doesn't necessarily remove uh, uh, or, or, or dispose of friction or dispose of the problem of people who identify fundamentally uh, as, a, as a group with something or some group, with some party or collection other than the state, which, which they've been, in a sense, drawn into by some uh, uh, former colonial power, power's pen. Um, the, 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 to move on, um, I, I, I do wonder how much we can ethically, ethically commemorate, and that's the president's phrase, what we don't yet fully understand. And again, I'm a bit awkward about this. 
I, I've just finished a big study, as you know, uh, with Dahlia Corrine and the Dead of the Irish Revolution, where I have, I have, we have a fairly good number of fatalities. And I say only a fatalities rising from 1916 to December 21. Um, and that's an elementary question, which I think has been more or less answered by us. I still have no idea how many people die as a result of Irish political violence from January 1922 to perhaps to the end of 1924. Uh, so the actual figures that actually are, are important. And we can't do a lot of that. We can't look at other questions. For example, the phenomenon, again, which John touched on in his paper of, of, uh, of if you like, non-Catholic migration, uh, from from the from what become the twenty six counties at some point between nineteen eleven and nineteen twenty six when the first census is held, and we're not ever going to be able to do that unless we uh, unless until unless and until we get the appropriate records. And the tragedy of that, in ethical terms, for this state, I would argue, is that uh, the state does possess. Um, very important collections of records related to the 1926 record in particular, but also to, to the Land Commission set up in 1923. And, and the, it's in those kind of kind of records that one will find the histories not of high politics or of who shot who or questions like that or how big a pension Tom Barry got or how many people were, you know, were in the GPO uh, on Easter Tuesday or Easter Wednesday 1916, but how people people's lives were affected. Uh, as it were, ordinary people, the people uh, amongst whom and to some extent above whom and around whom uh, the Irish Revolution was fought out. And not only in terms of, of, of the impact of the impact of violence and the fear of violence and the impact of discrimination falling short of violence and the fear of discrimination and also the fear of the, re the return of, of old tensions around land, in particular rural Ireland, how, how that plays out in practice. Uh, and I do think, we, we, yes, we should commemorate, but we also have to explore. And I wouldn't like like it to be thought that the state has, has done a great deal in terms of the revolution, specifically in terms, terms of the Bureau of Military History, which has given us very important and problematic narratives uh, from, if you like, from the rebel side, uh, and especially in terms of the Military Service Pensions Archive, which is absolutely enormous. I, I initially... Uh, with other people was campaigning in, I think, 2006 for it to be released. I said, there are 17,000 files and we must see them. And of course, there are over 300,000 files and the number is growing. But these are enormously important, but they are only one part of the Irish Revolution. They are the activists and to some extent the activist dependents and so on. And they're very much from one side. And there are other, other sides and so on, which the state, this state, leaving aside what may still be available or, or should be available in Northern Ireland or Britain, sometimes embargoed, usually for administrative reasons, not for political reasons. But the big thing is this state has not really taken the measure I think it should have done uh, in terms of respecting commemoration precisely in relation uh, to the Land Commission and to the, uh, uh, to the 1926 census and so on, which we will wait for now until uh, 2027, I guess unless reasons can be thought of uh, to, to, to uh, extend uh, our period of waiting rather rather longer. Um, I want to go back, though, to, to, to having got that off my chest, as it were, uh, Mr. President, uh, to, the, to, to the other question, which was raised by former Thesic John Bruton at the time of the 1916 centenary. I was on a panel with him. I think John Bowman was there as well. And John Bruton spoke in, in some ways in a very downbeat way, 
about the question and indeed the, eth the ethical appropriateness of commemorating the actual 1916 rising. And in effect, his argument was this wasn't the danger wasn't that one would acknowledge the, the heroism of men and women who, you know, who defied an empire and so on uh, in, the, in the near certainty that they would be defeated. And, of course, in a rather ambiguous alliance with gallant allies in Europe, who themselves, Germany, and leave Turkey out of it, and Austria-Hungary, but Germany had been a very brutal colonist, uh, the colonizer themselves in, in, in uh, Southwest Africa. But jo John Bruton's arg argument was the danger of focusing so much on armed force, by a rebellion inspired by a very small group, a militant secret group, really within a, within a wider group, um, without any democratic mandate and so on, was that it, it it downplayed two things. First of all, it downplayed the practical achievements uh, of the of the constitutional home rule home rule movement on under John Redmond, which in a sense had culminated in the Government of Ireland Act of 1914, which we must remember had granted uh, uh, home rule uh, for, for, for all of Ireland. Obviously, that was contested by Ulster. Um, and, but but he, he, John's argument was also that the danger was that this, this discredited to some extent uh, uh, the, 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 the practical evolution of Irish uh, democratic politics since you could say since 1918. In other words, uh, that the focus on revolutionary violence was in danger all the time of valorizing violence against the pedestrian matter of getting the vote uh, and using the vote and using that as the way to take political decisions and to provide for means by which uh, a, a an island, an Ireland, I beg your pardon, not an island, uh, would would be would be would be governed uh, in the future. And I assert, John. Bruton, as the president particularly knows, because he's, he's a colleague of his in government, uh, it isn't wouldn't be alone in those views. Uh, but he's perhaps the most uh, forthright uh, former national leader uh, to uh, to put them forward. And I think there was a challenge, which in some sense wasn't answered in 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 what John Bruton said at the time. But perhaps it is time now. I think it is it is notable that that our, our sort of uh, we move from 1916 uh, to the War of Independence. Uh, and we're going to move to the Civil War. We also have a look at, 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 at the violence, especially in Bel Belfast after partition, sometimes as a separate subject, which I think is entirely wrong. But we don't really focus on, on uh, what, again, what John mentioned, first of all, on, on the practical achievements of the, of the revolutionary government in underground administration, in setting up a, a kind of bureaucracy which attempted to govern, begin to govern Ireland, which is very important. And secondly, we don't look at, look at, at the sheer demonstrable attachment uh, to, 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 to democratic forms uh, of making political choices, which, which, which became very clear uh, in 1922 and again in 1923, when remarkably within, what, three or four months of the Civil War, not so much ending as just kind of dribbling away, uh, we, had, we had a general election when, in effect, the anti-treaty side were allowed to participate. And that's extraordinary. And it is the narrative of Irish democracy, uh, we don't have to, uh, we can put on, wear our hair shirts about uh, uh, the shortcomings of Irish society and Irish legislation and uh, the place of the place of the church in, 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 in public policy. Although I think sometimes in the UK, uh, people don't aren't familiar with their own constitution, which puts their church, as it were, their church, excuse me, uh, uh, right at the center of power and uh, embodied in the monarch. But we, 
the, the, this, this, the, the, the enduring attachment of, of, of independent Ireland uh, to electoral politics is something which I don't think we should congratulate ourselves for, but I think we should as, as historians and as citizens of whatever country that we, we, we should note. And yet, can I, 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 I'm going to lose track of time, of course, because I've departed from my script, so I apologize. Can I make the point that this same valorizing of violence is very striking in, 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 other, in other countries? I mentioned I was in India in 2012, and I follow Indian politics vaguely, and I'm very interested in particularly Afghanistan, which used to be Indians, India, British India's problematic northern neighbor and is now Pakistan's, uh, if you like, problematic northern neighbor. Uh, but if you look at the Indian English language media, which I, is the only thing I have access to, it's extraordinary the emphasis they put on what they call their war of independence, of their martyrs and so on, from 1857 to 1947. And this has been uh, uh, increasingly has been the tone of, of the present Indian government is to emphasize physical force. Whereas anybody looking at India in the round from the outside would argue that India achieved its independence and, of course, its, its partition or partitions because you had a part, two part partition in 1947 of India from what becomes Pakistan, but Pakistan itself was two different uh, physical entities about a thousand miles apart. And then you had another partition in 1971 when East Pakistan broke away and became Bangladesh. But you have, you have yet the Indian narrative is one of how we won our, our freedom by force, whereas in, in, in the world sees in, in, in Indian and indeed Pakistani uh, independence as having been achieved by largely peaceful means. And President Higgins in, in his own uh, discourses and, and others have pointed the, to the brutality of imperial power, if you like, and the imperial abuse of power. Uh, against against not only in India but also he mentioned or John Horn mentioned in Kenya uh, on, in some ways on a ferocious scale but this, the the headline story of Indian independence and of Pakistani independence should really be that by and large this was achieved through peaceful peaceful uh, constitutional politics notwithstanding savage colonial repression uh, and there were calamities at the actual moment of partition and there remain calamities in terms of intercommunal relations particularly between the six uh, between the muslims rather uh, versus the six and the hindus but india india got its got its independence i would argue largely by peaceful means but it chooses now to pretend it was part of, of it was it, uh, on foot of an armed struggle well, President, I'm not sure how much more I, I need, 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 need to say, except to, we have seen uh, in Ireland, I think in recent years, uh, a, a younger generation of, of, of scholars, which isn't hard for me to say, uh, who have begun to try to look at the Irish Revolution in terms of the lives of ordinary people and so on. I think uh, Neve Gallagher's work, for example, Fanula Walsh, whose book, on Irish women, the Great War has just come out. Uh, are, are trying to ask the questions. Well, what about the ordinary people of the island of Ireland? How they how they lived and so on. And I think that's really important because these are the people. Uh, not only are they the people, but they are the people who, in the case of Irish women, at least uh, at least come to vote from nineteen from from nineteen eighteen onwards. Uh, uh, they're the people who who. They're the mass of us. They're the ordinary people. And these have been too long excluded, whether it's from political studies or whether it's from wider social and cultural studies. And back to my point about uh, the Land Commission uh, and, and 1926 census and perhaps 
there are some comparable records and comparable problems in the north and in Britain. But we, we without records, it's very hard to shift the focus away from a small a small group of activists, whatever we think of them, uh, and however important they were at key times, and to get to get to grips with the ordinary lives, if you like, of ordinary people in extraordinary times. Just a, a couple of more points I've, uh, I, I want to make in relation to partition. Again, as John has said, partition uh, it wasn't particular to Ireland. And of course, the shape of partition in Ireland was not something uh, that was, that was a, a done deal uh, until about, we could argue, until about 1914, perhaps even a bit later. And back to my point about the man from Donegal who... who uh, who I won't say upbraided, but 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 who, who contested what I'd said uh, at some seminar or other. Uh, a nine-county Ulster was a real possibility, at least for the people in Donegal and in Cavan and in Monaghan who identified uh, with unionism and so on. Um, uh, a four-county Ulster was certainly a possibility uh, uh, from a nationalist perspective, however unpalatable, uh, in, in 1914. So the six counties that we got, and the the, re, the definition, the redefinition of Ulster as six-county Ulster is a very late addition in some ways to, to Irish political discourse. It's not something that was there uh, from the 1880s, say. It's something which emerges, uh, I would argue, around the crisis over Home Rule and the, uh, the third Home Rule bill. Uh, so, so, and I, I have... We all have a myriad of examples of partitions which go wrong, which are revised, uh, which create difficulties, which which still live with us. I was in Hungary some years ago. Yunan, yeah. uh, can I, John, John, John Bowman here, can I, you've raised a number of issues there that we will be discussing in the uh, exchange between all of us uh, presently. So can I just ask you to stop there and we'll visit some of those issues that you've just mentioned uh, in the in the debate.